Thank you, ladies. Appreciate that. And uh, man, that's something that as you grow in your life, you seem to understand more and more. Uh, maybe it's just age that gives you a different perspective on that, how much you have to lean. And I say that as a young man, I can't imagine the perspective some of you have. And uh, but you know, we need do need to lean on the Lord, and uh, He is the one that will get us through hard times, through difficulties. And I appreciate those of you that were praying. Uh, my wife and family, we were away this past weekend, and um, went home to visit my dad. And uh, we try to get home as much as we can these days uh, with his health being what it is. And uh, we had a good time. He is uh, increasingly uh, really getting worse. And uh, there's no stopping it as far as they know or can tell. And they're trying different experimental uh, drugs, but uh, it's all an experiment. You know, they don't know what's going to happen or what the results will be. But uh, we know that the Lord is able. And if he chooses, he'll prolong life. If not, he'll take him home. Um, but either way, uh, we'll definitely be learning to lean on Jesus throughout it all. And I do appreciate your prayers. This evening, if you have your Bibles and if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I, sorry about my uh, voice, I don't know what it is, woke up this morning and just had a frog in it, and so I, it's a little cracky, and uh, I'll try to make it as tolerable as possible here. Uh, but I do want to bring a message tonight that uh, the Lord has laid in my heart, and I trust uh, it will be a blessing to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, and uh, the book of Thessalonians, <clears throat> it is actually uh, one of the first books, or the first book, that Paul wrote to one of the churches, those pastoral epistles uh, to the churches, this is the first one, 
And so 1 Thessalonians is that the first book ever written to a church to encourage, to exhort, and uh, to uh, strengthen it. Uh, Paul had a very special interest. This is uh, Paul as he's going out on his second missionary journey. Uh, He starts the church that is in Thessalonica. If you were to read in Acts chapter 17, uh, starting in verse 1 and going about halfway through the chapter, uh, you'll read the story of Paul starting this church. And it was no small task. As was typical of Paul, the first thing he did when he got to Thessalonica was he went to the synagogue. That's where he would find religious people, people who were uh, somewhat interested in the Lord. And that's where he would start presenting the gospel. Uh, When he got to Thessalonica, though, when he got to this synagogue, he began to preach. The Bible says that he was there for three Sabbaths. So uh, for three weeks, he's preaching the word of God to the uh, the Thessalonians. And uh, the Bible says uh, that uh, a few separated themselves. A few Jews separated themselves and accepted Christ. And so there was a few Jews that accepted Christ during this three weeks time. But it also says that a multitude of Greeks, the Gentiles, accepted Christ. So we have a small group of Jews, a large group of Gentiles. They all accept Jesus Christ within this three-week span. And then all hell breaks loose. The religious Pharisees and the Jews, the Bible says, who rejected Christ, rejected the gospel message, begin to stir up strife. It says that they went and got some men of the baser sort, uh, some men who really... uh, the thugs, all right? You watch some of the Baltimore riots on TV. I'd imagine it would be some of those folks and, uh, you know, the ones who are protesting, you know, uh, hate crimes and stealing toilet paper. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the baser sort the Bible's referring to. And uh, th- those that just want to stir up strife. I'm not making a racial slur or anything of that nature. Those who want to stir up strife. And that's exactly what happened here. They went and got some thugs to cause some riots. And uh, once they got the riots started, then the religious people went to the government and began to make accusations. These men are causing all this violence because they say there's another king. And so they begin to weave this web of deceit and causing, uh, you know, inciting hate is really all they're doing. they, They come in the name of peace inciting hate. And there's so many parallels to where we're at today. Uh, and what's being done here in this passage, uh, what happened when this church was started. So Paul and Silas, who were the two men that went to Thessalonica, uh, go into hiding, not wishing to be arrested and uh, having a task at hand. Uh, They hide, and so uh, the rioters loot the town. They go around, and the Bible says that they can't find Paul and Silas. And since they can't find Paul and Silas, uh, they take one of the new Christians. The Bible only names uh, names the one. It, It says that he arrested more than one, but they named Jason. And so Jason is arrested, and uh, he's taken to prison. He's given a punishment and released. The Bible says that that night that the believers who were new in Thessalonica uh, get Paul and Silas, and they usher them out of town uh, under the cover of dark. So Paul, only after three weeks, starts a church, has a group of believers, but then is run off. So here's a body that has no instruction. They have nobody to show them the way. Uh, They have, you know, the Old Testament law that they could read, the Pentateuch, the things that they would have been reading anyway. Uh, But here they are with no instruction on how to be Christians today, uh, post-law, all right, Uh, after Jesus Christ. And and the Bible, um, this is where Paul comes in with 1 Thessalonians. 
he leaves and he becomes burdened for the people because he knows even while he was there, they became, uh, became uh, or started to be uh, under persecution. And so he knows that they're going through a difficult time. He knows that things are not easy for them. And uh, as you read the first several chapters of First Thessalonians, you'll see that. He says, I was worried about your faith. I was worried that you wouldn't stand up to the pressure. I knew that persecution was going to come, uh, that it even came while we were still there. Even three weeks after your conversion, it was already coming. He said, so I, I knew it was going to come, and, and I, became to, uh, I started to become worried about you. Will you be able to stand? Will your faith hold strong? Will you develop in your walk with God, or, or will you fall by the wayside? He was worried about his fruit not remaining, and so he followed up the way that we ought to follow up with our converts today. Make sure that they just don't fall fall to the side. And so he follows up and, and he, what he does first is he sends Timothy back. He's not able to get back there. If you read, the Bible says that the devil hindered him often. You know, though he tried, he wasn't able to get there. And so he sent Timothy back. And he said, Timothy, I need, a, I need an update. I need a status report. Go to, go to Thessalonica and see how the church is doing. And then also teach them. Show them how to, to live their lives under grace and show them what it means to be a Christian, to be one of God's children. And so Timothy goes and steps in as a pastor role. He reports back to Paul and uh, tells him that their faith is remaining strong, that they're doing well, Paul. They, they didn't fall by the wayside. They, they stuck it out. And that just goes to prove that if you walk with God, even if you don't have everything that you need, maybe somebody to counsel you or guide you or disciple you, if you really want it and you walk with God, that you can succeed, you can do well. That's what happened to the church here. They didn't have anybody to hold their hand, but they walked with God. They had a relationship with the Lord, and uh, they did well. And so uh, Paul uh, writes this letter to the Thessalonians. As I mentioned, the first uh, four chapters of this five-chapter book, he really praises them throughout the, throughout the four chapters, telling them how proud he is of them, that their faith didn't falter and that they didn't give up and that they remained faithful through all of it, even though persecution... And you'll notice there's a theme in First Thessalonians, and that's the second coming of Christ, and that we have hope in the second coming of Christ. And the reason that that's the theme of this book is because persecution did increase for them. And not only were they being imprisoned, but they were actually losing their lives. And so Paul addresses this in the first four chapters and telling them that there is a time where, you know, that the, all the dead in Christ will be resurrected and that you will uh, stand before those that sleep and those that are alive. Everyone will be brought uh, before the Lord and not to worry about that, that our present suffering is, is just a temporary thing, that there's something grander, there's a, a greater, uh, greater picture. And uh, actually the end of every single chapter of the first book of Thessalonians addresses the second coming of Christ. And uh, he, he just brings it to remembrance that at the end of every single chapter, hey, there's a glorious hope, there's a, there's a coming, uh, there's a blessed day, something to look forward to. But when we come to chapter 5, that's the first four. Praising them, encouraging them, giving them uh, a cause, really giving them a reason why to continue on. But when we come to, to uh, chapter number 5, he abruptly changes gears. And uh, that's uh, the book that I want to look at tonight. And I want to bring a message this evening simply entitled Basics for Bible Believers. Basics for Bible Believers. And let's look to the Lord in prayer before we begin tonight. Father, Lord, again, we do come before your throne and thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, as we look at this book that was written to the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago, Lord, uh, we pray that you would uh, help us to draw the lesson uh, that applies to us today. 
Lord, this was written to the New Testament church, and that's who we are. We know that there's plenty of application throughout this chapter, and so we pray that you would help us to make application, to not just uh, take the words as they're written on a, a page and pick and choose what we want, but to absorb what your word says and make change in our life as a result. And Father, we pray that you would get all the honor and glory for everything that's said and uh, all the decisions that are made. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Basics for Bible believers. The first thing that I want to uh, draw your attention to is in chapter 5 in verse number 1. And I believe that the first uh, 11 verses of this chapter, Paul gives a reminder regarding our warfare. A reminder regarding our warfare. He says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. You don't need to be reminded that we live in uh, a sinful society, he's saying. The times and the seasons, you don't need to know what uh, those are. You see them around you. You know how wicked the world is. He says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. He he, he reminds them, you, you know that the Lord's return is imminent. Don't waste time in trying to figure out when it's going to be. No one knows, all right? Nobody knows. They didn't know then, they don't know now, and anyone who would claim that they do is a lunatic and is not worth listening to. He says, but ye, brethren, are in darkness. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should not overtake you as a thief. As a born-again believer, uh, Christians in Thessalonica and Christians today, you don't need to worry about being caught up in a vulnerable state. As a thief in the night, somebody who would catch you unaware, stealing things that are precious to you. He says, you're not that person. You're not in darkness anymore. Don't worry about being caught up uh, in a vulnerable position. He says, you are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. In this first little passage here, Paul first mentions that we're children of the day, we're children of the light. We are no longer uh, children of of the darkness. We're no longer children of the night. We are changed. We're no longer in that image. That old man has passed away. Uh, Behold, all things are become new. And so he says, uh, because you're no longer that old person, be watching. Be ready. Keep your eyes open. Look for the coming of Jesus Christ. You don't need to fear the coming of Jesus Christ, but have your eyes open. Uh, Be prepared, that is. Have your heart ready. Be sober. Watch. But then Paul describes others in these verses here. The others are they that sleep in the sleep of night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. I believe wholeheartedly that these people who sleep in the sleep of night and are drunken in the the drunkenness of night are not the unsaved, but there are the Christians who refuse to watch. They are the Christians who in their lives refuse the light. And unfortunately, today in Christianity, there are those of us who are saved in a child of God, but refuse to walk in the light. 
And Paul's reminding them here, uh, he's reminding them of their spiritual warfare. Saying, hey, that there is a battle that you will fight every single day. A good versus evil, light versus darkness, night versus day. You will fight this battle every single day. And there's two kinds of people. The kind of person who wins the battle and is sober and vigilant. But then there's the kind of person who is drunk in the drunkenness of night. Who sleeps the sleep of night. The person who sits back in his laziness. That's what sleep represents in the Bible. Sitting back and not taking the lead. Not willing to take that step. Not willing to move forward in their Christian life. Because it would require them to get rid of the vices and the things that they have in their lives like drunkenness. Sin. The flesh. And because they don't want to get rid of those things, uh, they decide that they're not going to fight the spiritual warfare. And so here he describes them as those that sleep in the sleep of night. They're still in darkness. Yes, they're a child of God, uh, but they're living as though they are not. Christians who refuse to squash that old nature. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it says, For ye were sometimes darkness. Ye were. At one point, At a point in your life you were darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He says you were darkness, but you have to walk as children of light. And if you refuse to walk as children of light, you remain where? In the darkness. If you don't step out of the darkness, you remain in it. I I mean, it seems pretty uh, obvious. If I don't flip the light switch on, I remain in a dark room. It takes action. It takes action. And we know here that the action that he speaks about is the action of spiritual warfare. That daily we have a a battle to fight. Daily we have decisions to make about whether we are going to remain in darkness or whether we are going to step into the light. We know this because verse number 8 where he says, put on that breastplate of faith and love. He brings in military terms here, indicating the spiritual warfare. And a helmet, the helmet of hope, of salvation says there's a battle that you're going to fight. There's a battle that you're going to face on a daily basis. In Romans chapter 13, verses 12, uh, the Bible says that the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of what? Darkness. Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Daily in our lives, we are faced with unprecedented attacks. Attacks that we've never faced in this way. People may have faced them, and it was different though. Every attack of the devil is different because it's shaped and formed specifically for you. People have been through similar trials and they've been through similar circumstances, but nobody has been through a battle the way that you will face a battle. Often we say that the devil has well-aimed attacks, but that's not true. The devil has perfectly aimed attacks. What he aims for, he hits every single time. The devil doesn't throw a dart your way just by happenstance and say, I hope it sticks. He doesn't come along with weaknesses that he knows you don't struggle with and just like they used to do with those old fodder cannons and just shove spoons and uh, rocks and whatever they could find back in the, the, you know, those, those blasters back in the day of the pilgrims. 
He, he just doesn't shoot fodder, just say, oh, I, you know, uh, what do they say uh, in the military? Was this uh, spray and pray or pray and spray or something like that? You know, it's just, you know, open that machine gun and just, you know, spray and pray that you hit something. It's not how the devil works. He has a well-aimed, perfectly aimed attack. For some, it's attacks from family members or friends mocking your faith. For some, it's the need for entertainment by which the devil sneaks into your homes, polluting your hearts. For some, it's the upholding of biblical standards for you and your family that the devil is constantly on attack with. For some, the devil aims at your marriage, causing division and strife. For some, it's past success that you're proud of that hinders you from having success today. For others, it's past failures that hold you in fear of failing again thereby nullifying the forgiveness of Christ in your life. For some, it is your children who sway your dedication to Christ with their constant nagging. For some, it's discouragement, depression. For others, it's a perverted thought life, the lust of the flesh. For some, it's your false persona, your idea of who you think you ought to be in Christ and how you act, but it's not really who you are. And because you pretend to be this person, you're hindering yourself from becoming the person you really should be. These are all areas of weakness, and for you, I don't know what the area is. I think I've been attacked in all of these areas. Maybe I'm just a proficiently weak person. But I think we all struggle. And the devil knows exactly where to hit. He knows the nerve. He knows where to place that dart. How many times in a a movie or in some film have you seen the the uh, dragon slayer who has to throw that arrow right under the perfect scale to get it. He has to throw that spear right in the perfect spot. He has to place the sword right underneath that armor. He has to get the arrow right through that little hole. And the devil does it every single time. Piercing, trying to destroy. For some it is what? For you, what is it? Fill in the blank. I don't know what it is for you. But what I do know is that this rule applies to everybody. These attacks come perfectly aimed and perfectly timed every single time in our life. And they were custom made just for you. And Paul comes to these Christians where they were being faithful. They were standing up to persecution that we only pray we could stand up to. They were being martyred. They were being killed. They were being, uh, whatever was happening at this time in history, whether it was burnings or hangings or or, uh, being fed to the lions or uh, dismemberment or disembowelment or beheadings, whatever it was, the worst was being done to these folks, imprisoned and tortured. Here they are doing everything that's right. And Paul turns around and says, Hey, remember you're in a spiritual warfare. And you say, why why is he telling them they're in a spiritual warfare? Don't you think he understands? I mean, they're losing loved ones on a daily basis. You think that he, yes, but it's a reminder that's so important. Remember, this is a young church and Paul wants to see it grow. And that's why this reminder of our, uh, regarding our spiritual warfare is so important for us today. Sure, you may understand the principle. You may even be enduring a trial right now. But it's something that we have to take heed to if we want to grow and mature, if we want our church to succeed and do well, no matter what stage you're in, whether you're doing well or whether you're faltering right now, 
I want to remind you this evening that there is a spiritual warfare. And it's every single day. Choose to walk in the light. Choose. The same way that Joshua had to decide in his day that he and his family would serve the Lord and he challenged the children of Israel to make that decision real and relevant in their lives. Tonight, I would also uh, draw you to the same challenge of making the decision to choose to decide to fight the battle. It's so easy. It's so easy to give up the fight. And we don't do it by throwing up our hands and taking a step back and falling off the deep end. That's not how we lose battles. It's not how it works for us as Christians. We lose battles when we wake up in the morning and neglect the Word of God. That's the battle that's lost. That's the spiritual warfare that we take a step back and allow the, sa- allow the devil to push us back into darkness. It's the little battles. That, after all, we know the war is already won. We are the children of God. The war will not be lost, but the battles on a daily basis, those can be lost. But live victorious. Live in victory. Don't live defeated. Don't live uh, in darkness. Who wants to live in darkness? Depressed, discouraged, under the weather. It's not a place anybody wants to be. It's not a pleasant place to be. Choose to fight the battle. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. A verse that we all mostly know by heart and very common with, but we don't quote the rest. Whom resists steadfast in the faith knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Hey, the devil's not just after you. The same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren throughout the world. The same battles. The devil's trying to attack us all. He's trying to destroy us all. But, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect. Establish, strengthen, settle you. Just keep fighting because God's on your side. He will establish. He will strengthen. He will settle you. He will make you perfect. Remember, that's who's on your side. And Paul here is not just uh, telling the church of Thessalonica, this baby church, to be weary of the spiritual warfare. He's telling them to be uh, vigilant and to be aggressive and be, uh, uh, be careful Because the adversary is out there, but you're not on your own. And just remain faithful and the Lord will strengthen. He will establish. He will settle you. He will make you perfect. We look at this young church and all that they're going through. All that they're withstanding. And Paul opens up this chapter challenging them to stand. Where we would say they're looking strong, he would say stand. And I don't care where you're at today. We all need to be reminded to stand. To stand in this evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Stand. We've got to stand. Paul follows up this reminder in verse number 11 here. We've read the first 10, but then verse number 11. He not only tells them that they need to be watchful and vigilant of this, this battle that they're in, but he says in verse number 11... Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. See, there's the thing about spiritual warfare, and it's 
not just that we have to have a relationship with God in order to have success in spiritual warfare. I believe that's a huge, huge, huge misconception in our churches today, that we can only be victorious in spiritual warfare with God. Well, we do need God, but there's another element to it here, and that's the church. That's our brothers and sisters in the church. And he, te- he tells them here, he says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves. He goes through all of this stuff about the battles and the struggles and the trials. He doesn't tell them about walking with God. He knows they're doing it. You know what he follows it up immediately with? Wherefore, comfort ye one another. He says, you got to be around each other. And you got to encourage and you got to pick each other up encourage and and not only that he tells them to edify edify is to build up it's literally the act of of building something up how do you build something well you set a foundation and you you start to build the structure and that's what he tells us as christians he says comfort and edify one another somebody going through struggles or some trials in your church you may not even know it but comfort one another encourage one another So we're so good at tearing down. We're so good at destroying and nitpicking and seeing this person that irritates us and, well, I can't get along with them and I don't get along with them. And most of the time, half the church doesn't get along with the other half of the church. But that's not what the body of Christ is. That's not how we get through temptation and struggle and trial in our lives. The Bible very clearly tells us here, wherefore, comfort yourselves together. And edify one another, even also as you do. They were doing it, but he was reminding them still how important it is. You're in spiritual warfare. You need to comfort. You need to edify. You need to build up. You need to encourage one another. When's the last time you encouraged somebody? I don't know. Wrote a note. Thank you. Good job. Appreciate your hard work. Praying for you. I mean, genuine. I'm not talking about the I'm praying for you in passing, the legitimate I'm praying for you heartfelt inquiry about things that are going on in people's lives that you're aware of. Maybe you're not aware of something, but you still let them know that, hey, I'm here for you. Is there something I can help with? We need to comfort and build one another up, encourage one another. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 25, verse 11, that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. That the word, a word spoken is just a beautiful thing when it's rightly timed. And that's what this is talking about, that rightly timed word of encouragement, being sensitive to a person's needs and helping them through the trials they're in. A reminder, the first thing we see here in a basics for Bible believers is a reminder regarding our warfare. The second thing that we see this evening is a reprimand regarding our leadership. In verses number 12 and 13, it says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. As mentioned earlier, Timothy was sent by Paul. Remember? Timothy was sent by Paul to the church at Thessalonica to be the pastor. And I'm sure Timothy, being a youth, Uh, must have had some level of disrespect going on. I don't know exactly what was going on, but I do know it was to the point where Paul needs to say something about it and then also not just say something about it. He says, and be at peace among yourselves. Obviously, there was some kind of contention going on. I I don't know to what level of degree it is. Maybe they didn't like what he was doing, decisions he was making. I don't know. 
And although it is clear, follow along with me, although it is clear Paul is correcting an issue that was going on in the church, if that's all we see out of these verses as a correction, we're missing out on what these verses are saying. We read the intent of the verse. Paul's correcting the church because they're not respecting their preacher. And that's what it says to us. But that's not what the verse is saying. That's not what, it actually, what it's actually saying to us. And if we feel that it's just a message on not disrespecting our pastors, we're missing out on so much. It's so, it's so much more than a lesson on what not to do. It's a lesson on what to do. He says here, no. No. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labor among you. To know. It's, a person, it's personal recognition. If I know somebody, it's me personally recognizing them. Recognizing what they're doing. Observation or remembrance of what this person is and what they are about. To know somebody is to know who the person is, what they're doing, what they're about, what their heart is. The challenge here is don't, is, is not about respecting your pastor. It's about knowing your pastor. Amen. Knowing where his heart is at and knowing what his vision is and knowing what the Lord is doing in his life and, and what direction he has, is leading him and, and recognizing that. Know those that labor above you. It says, read it here with me. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. It, it seems to indicate three different people. Labor, are over you, and admonish you. But it's not three different people. It's one person. It's the task given to the pastor, the under-shepherd. Labor, what is labor then? What's this task, this thing that we're to know? We're to know those that labor among you. Well, labor is the laborious life. Hard work, dedication. So we're to acknowledge that in our pastor. Hard work and dedication. To see it, to recognize it, to observe it. Not just to see what he's doing and to elevate him, but to learn from it. To follow his example as he follows Christ. To labor, those that labor above you. Secondly, those that are over you. This is his position as, as our pastor, as, as our shepherd, under shepherd to the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it describes it as those that have rule over you. It's, it's his position. Those that rule are those that are above you. Then thirdly, this third task is those that admonish you. This is the faithful admonition. The faithful admonition, not just somebody getting up and teaching a lesson. This is the faithful admonition of 20 plus years of service. Being faithful to the Lord. It's putting in remembrance, uh, uh, not just a teaching, but a lifestyle. And so Paul here gives a very specific instruction to us. And the instruction is not, don't disrespect your pastor. The instruction is, know your pastor. Know that he labors. Know that he is above you. And know that he wants to admonish you. And so when he stands and does those things, respect it. Respect it. The Bible is very clear here that we're to esteem, esteem him very highly. That means exceedingly abundant, abundantly. Something that's very highly is exceedingly abundantly, better than best. 
As in, you know how the Lord is exceedingly abundantly better than all that we could ask or think? That's exceedingly abundantly. I'm not elevating pastor above the Lord. I'm saying that that's how we should esteem him. As in, he's the best thing for you right now. Because he is. If, you've, if the Lord has led you here to this church and you're following the Lord's leading and you're sitting under his authority as our pastor, he's the best thing for you as under shepherd goes right now in your life. Amen. Exceedingly abundantly. You know what? The early church treated Paul this way. He often wrote about it, how they refreshed his spirit, how, he tr- how they treated him worthy of double, of double honor, meeting all of his physical needs and more. If you read through the the epistles, you see how the church treated Paul. These are examples for us to follow. Not just because he labors and admonishes and is above us, but there's a kicker right at the end of this verse, and it says, for their work's sake. It says, even if you don't like it, even if you don't like what he's doing, you don't like the decision, you don't like how he's doing it or how he's going about it, You don't like what he's doing. I'm not talking about something sinful, just a decision he made as far as a leader goes. You don't like it. That's not how you judge, Pastor. That's not how you decide if you're going to respect or honor him. Because the honor and respect comes as a result of their work's sake. What is the work of the pastor? Well, it's the spreading of the gospel. That's the work of the church, and that's the work of every Christian. And because that is what he has dedicated his life to, for no other reason, simply because he's done that, worthy, esteemed very highly. That's how we ought to treat our preacher. Esteemed very highly. If for nothing else, their work's sake. We have a lot more than that to esteem him very highly for. Because if you do get to know your preacher, you observe and recognize how he labors, how he admonishes, how he lives, There's so much more to admire there and to follow after, an example to to follow after. For their work's sake, though, esteem them very highly. And then at the end of the verse, and be at peace among yourselves. You may have a burr under your saddle about something, but don't go trying to get everybody in the church to ride your pony. All right? There's no point in it. Be at peace among yourselves. Obviously, some people liked them, and some people didn't like Timothy. And so there was contention. But be at peace. And the best way to be at peace is if you've got a problem is go right to preacher. Go right to the pastor. A reprimand regarding our leadership. So important. Leadership is all whacked out today. In our society, we don't want male leaders. We don't want role models. We, every, you know, the role models are these guys that are in the, you know, sports and and all these things that they could charge with, you know, rape and murder and everything else, and, and that's the role model. You know, what's his name? Ray Rice getting on the other day telling, you know, the Baltimore people not to riot. Yeah, how many counts of assault has that guy been charged with? Yeah, great role model. Way to stand up and tell him not to riot, but not do that in your own life. Our roles of, of authority are all jacked up. They're messed up, and we've got to reestablish them. The church should be that place. Your home should be that place where authority and role models are in place and followed and respected. There's a respect that is given because of a position, and that's what's here with this pastor. Thirdly, this morning, so secondly, we see that reprimand regarding our leadership. Thirdly, we see a rude awakening regarding the basics. And we're going to wrap up quickly here, but I want you to follow along with me. We have an exceedingly high expectation 
of those that are in leadership. And I'm not simply referencing pastor or the staff. I'm talking about those that would be Sunday school teachers or have been Sunday school teachers or those that are leaders within the church. There are leaders. They're distinct. And we often have a, a high expectation of what we expect from those that are in leadership. It may be to varying degrees, but at some level, to some degree, we all have higher expectations for certain people, don't we? We do. We look around and we say, oh, they should be, what? How could they do that? And you know, I myself find myself in this position of judging another person saying, they know better than that and they may have known better than that. And they probably should have known better than that. But Paul addresses something so critical here. And we may have these expectations of how people should take care of issues and deal with encouragement or discouragement and all whatever it is, whatever you can look at, you know, they're they're the person that should be giving counsel and they're the person should be dealing with that person's depression and 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 she's the person that should be helping her through this and he's the person that should be and we want to point the responsibility is what I'm getting at to everybody else. Put the responsibility of being a Christian on those that are in leadership or those that are in this position or those that are over there because they've been saved longer. And if we're not careful, we all do it to some degree. If you're honest, you're, you would be, yeah, yep, I've done it. But I want to point out here some verses. In verse number 14, he says, Now we exhort you, brethren... Who is Paul talking to? The church. Now we exhort you, brethren. Now I've got a message, and this is for everybody in the church. This is not just for leadership. It's not just for men. It's not just for women. It's not for children. It's not for the young. It's not for the aged. Now we exhort ye, brethren. And he begins to go through a list. And and watch this. And I'll try to explain it as we go through. I'm going to move quickly, but follow along if you would. Warn them that are unruly. This is not necessarily describing somebody who is out of control. It's a term used for those who expect to be maintained, but will not work for their maintenance. It's actually a term used in the military back in the day, way back. An unruly soldier was somebody who would not report for duty. And the Bible tells us here, warn them that are unruly. Saying, there's some, there's some among you. Remember, who is this challenge to? Is it to the pastor? It's to the church. It's to every Christian. Warn them that are unruly. So is it just the pastor's job to get up here and say, you're not doing what you should be doing. Why aren't you soul winning? Why aren't you, why aren't you being faithful to the house of God? How come you didn't come to Sunday school last week? Where were you Wednesday night? Why are you doing that sinful thing? Why are you skipping church to go over here with this hobby? It's not the pastor's job. It's the brethren. It's the church. Warn them that are unruly. Secondly, comfort the feeble-minded. Encourage those who are weary, those who are ready to sink in despair. No, it's not just the pastor's job to give counseling to those that are weak. It's the church. It's our job. 
It's my job to encourage and your job to encourage. And we see somebody who's sinking into a pit, who can't pull themselves up, who can't get out of it. We don't call the preacher to say, hey, preacher, I think you should go over there and visit him, as in laying the responsibility only on his shoulders. Sure, the pastor should know and you can let him know. But then why don't you stand up and walk over there and encourage them? Because that's how the church works. That's what he says. Brethren, comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. Literally meaning to carry them along. Be patient toward all men. Not just your family. Not the guy that you like at church. Not your best friend. Not those that you get along with. Not the ones who just, you know, they get along with you and everything's hunky-dory. Be patient with all men. The guy who rubs you the wrong way. The guy who annoys you. The person you don't get along with. Be patient with all men. Oh, I just don't get along with them. I, I leave pastor to that or I'll leave, you know, brother Brad to follow up with them because we just don't get along. I just, I can't encourage that person because we don't get along. Well, get the stinking thing right and go encourage the person. Amen. Encourage all men. You don't pick and choose the one that you want to. Be patient with all men. You don't get to pick and choose the one that you want to be patient with. See that none render evil for evil, uh, that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. You know, it's often the people that are closest to us who get the brunt of our anger. It's the people we're most familiar with. And the Bible says, "See that you render no evil for evil, even the ones that are closest to you, not just the ones that are on arm's length." Don't try to get back or hold a grudge. Don't let that sin fester and, and, and spoil your Christian life. Don't render evil for evil. And he even goes so far as to say, both among yourselves, intimately, and to all men. You know, that unsaved coworker that just drives you nuts. Don't render evil for evil. Don't try to return the favor and drive them nuts. Here's the Here's the list. We're not even halfway through it. Rejoice evermore. Be a ha- have a happy spirit. Don't be a grump fest. Everywhere you go, there's a cloud of doom, thunder and rain spewing out of your ears. Boom, woe is me. You know, like Eeyore? Doom and gloom and everything's horrible. I'm tired of Christians that are gloomy. That's not a relationship with God. It's not just for the pastor to have to come into the church on Sunday morning and say, hey, everything's weak. Let's go ahead and sing another song. You seem like you're asleep and like you're not interested in being here. Let's go ahead and try to liven this up a little bit. Let's, let's try to get people excited. You know, like he's a promoter trying to stir you up that you have something to be joyful about. That's not what it is to be a Christian. It's not just for a leadership position to have a joyful spirit. That's every single Christian's responsibility. Be joyful. Rejoice evermore. Pray without, uh, without ceasing. Don't feel like you have to get a hold of some spiritual giant in the church to make intercession. A lot of times we feel that way because we have no walk with God. And so something co- tar- terrible comes and we feel like, oh, I've got to get to somebody who can get a hold of God. But pray without ceasing. That insinuates that you have a constant flow of communication between you and the Lord. That there's not anything there that's hindering that communication. There's not anything in your life that hinders that communication. Pray without ceasing. Be constant in your prayer. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Uh, you know, the Bible doesn't say, for everything, give thanks. It's 
interesting to note that because there's not things that we want to give thanks for. You know, Brother Jeffrey's a, you don't have to give thanks for the cancer. You don't have to give thanks for the illness. You don't have to give thanks for the financial difficulty. Because they're going to be there and in everything. Give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. It's there for a reason. It's his will that it's there. You don't have to be thankful for it, but be thankful in it. Be thankful that God is allowing you to go through it because it's for a reason. It's for a purpose. Some lessons are harder than others. And it's not just the pastors who can keep calm and carry on through it. Everybody ought to. The brethren, the church. Quench not the spirit. The spirit wants to work in you and through you. And quenching not the spirit is not just holding him back from working through you. God has given you talents that make manifest through the spirit. Don't hold those back. Maybe you've got a talent to serve. Maybe you've got a servant's heart or a musical ability. Maybe God has blessed you with something and you're sitting here tonight quenching the spirit. You say, well, that's to that person to take care of the music and that's to that person to be the next Sunday school teacher and that's to that person to be the next bus driver. And You may have a talent. You could do those things. You could serve that way, but you choose instead to quench the spirit, to hold those talents back. Don't be the person that quenches the spirit. doesn't allow God to work through you. Next, despise not prophesying. Love the preaching. Love the preaching. doesn't always taste good going down. It doesn't always feel good coming out. But love the preaching. It's there for us. And it, if we'll listen and apply it, God will use it in our lives and He'll change us with it. But all too often, listen, all too often, and I know I'm going long tonight, and I hope that you're just loving the preaching, all right? <laughs> but all too often, we sit back, and we wait for the service to get over. We wait for the invitation to come. And tonight is not a practice in testing your patience. I'm not doing it on purpose. <laughs> but love preaching. When the time comes to sit under it, man, be ready for it. You know, if you love preaching, you're pre you prepare for it. Your heart's ready for it. That, that means that you've checked yourself before you walked in the front doors. So, so that way, you're ready to receive. Often we come to church with the heavy heart and the burdens and the sin, and we're wa waiting to get right while we're at church, as, as moronic as that sounds. It's like we're waiting, you know, for that, that altar call to get our sin dealt with. No. <laughs> come to church to receive a blessing. Come to church prepared, ready to hear of the preaching. Despise not prophesying. It's not just love the preaching. It's don't despise it. Every once in a while, pastor will get up and touch on a topic, and we're just like, yeah. why is he talking about that again? He seems to be talking about that, and it's probably not always talking about it. You just hear it because you're wrong in that area, and I know that's how it works for me. When I keep hearing the same thing over and over and over again in a message, I know the Lord's trying to get my attention about something. Okay, God, I get the point. You don't have to allow a preacher to preach you know, 12 months on the same topic before I get it. <laughs> You know, he didn't preach 12 months on the same topic. He says, I was that stubborn. Didn't see it for a whole year. Despise not prophesying. But not just that. He follows despise not prophesying up with something very important here. He says a, a very important phrase. He says, prove all things. He says, don't just sit in the pew and take for granted what is being said. Prove all things. Establish it. When you prove something, you establish it, you solidify it, you make it legitimate. Prove all things. 
whatever I've said tonight it shouldn't be taken at face value of me standing here reading a verse and making a statement. It should be backed up with Scripture. And, and if I've said something that's wrong tonight and you can show me a Scripture where I'm wrong, then show it to me and I'll change where I stand. But that's where we've got to be. And today we're mindless. I'll tell you, over and over and over again, I see it more and more than ever. Mindless, mindless, mindless Christians. Sheep. Hit a wall, decide to go this way. We're wishy-washy. We're up and down. We change our mind. This is good now and this is bad tomorrow. This was my standard and now it's gone. This was right but it's no longer right for me. Or I don't see it that way anymore and now I see it this way. Or this music's okay. Well, no, I believe this is all right too. And this is the exception to the rule. And, and over here, no. And we're back and forth. We're up, we're down. And the reason we are that way is because we have nothing proved in our lives. Somebody taught a principle or a precept from the Word of God and, and it was just like, okay, in one ear, out the other. We never studied it. We never researched it. We never made application. It just came and it left. And that's why we have Christians that flounder and flop and give up and fall out and they hit a hard time and they run the opposite direction because nothing is proved. What's proved in your life? What's real? What's legitimate? It's not just for the pastor to prove what he believes. We need to prove it in our own lives every single day. And when the pastor preaches something or the preacher preaches something and it's right there in the Word of God, black and white, red and white, whatever it is, it says it, you see it, it's backed up, you know it's there, don't pick and choose the cherry off the, off the banana split. Eat the whole thing. It's good for you, especially banana splits. But prove it. Prove it. Take it all, even if you don't want it. But the Bible said it, and so take it. Christians, you won't prove anything. Just the, I don't think, or I don't feel. So frustrating, because it just shows the, the lack of spiritual depth in a church and in a person's life when you can't prove anything from the Word of God. And then it follows this up. It says, despise not preaching. Approve all things, and then it says something great. Hold fast to that which is good. You hear it preached, love it. You prove it from the word of God, take it and hold on to it. Don't let go. The word of God doesn't change, so don't change. Stick with it. He's not going to let you go, so keep holding on to him. Draw nigh to him and he'll draw nigh to you. Stay walking, stay faithful, stay moving forward. Hold fast to that which is good. And finally, he says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Don't just stay away from things that are wrong. Stay away from things that could be perceived as being wrong. Like avoiding a movie theater because people don't know what you're watching. Not going into a liquor store to buy a soda. They don't know that you're buying the Coke. You know, they think you're getting a little Bacardi and Cola or something in there. Not just the I don't know. But you avoid it because of the appearance, right? The appearance of evil. We've got to be careful about these things. It's not just the pastor who should be above reproach, remember, church. It's the brethren. We should all be above reproach. I believe that these things are listed in this manner, not just to remind us that they're all duties for all Christians, but also that they are all process of some very important thing that should be taking place in our life, and that thing is sanctification. And he follows it up in verse number 23. We're going to close here. He says, "...in the very God of peace sanctify you wholly." 
You can't have peace unless you're sanctified, by the way. Look it up. You have to be perfecting your life. You have to be striving. That's where peace comes from. Peace doesn't come from accepting Jesus Christ your Savior and living how you want to live. There's principles. and There's the Word of God that shows us how to live. It's right there. It's written out. It's in black and white. We follow it. That's how we have peace. And then in verse number 24, he follows this all up. And it's so encouraging when I get through a, te- a piece of Scripture like this that just rips me up and down and tells me how lame I am as a Christian. At least that's how I feel after I've read it. I get through a passage of Scripture like this, and I feel like, man, I'm such a failure of so many areas of weakness, so many things I need to correct. But then he follows it up with these verses, and I love it when they're there because I know that it's not just dependent on me because he says, faithful is he that calleth you, who will also, who also will do it. It's not all dependent on me. Being all of those things that lead to sanctification is not all dependent on me because he is faithful in my life, and he will do it. Faithful is he who called you. Perform it. He'll perform it in you unto the day of Jesus Christ. He'll perform it. But just do what you should do. Be what you should be. Don't worry about the person and tell them what they should be. Follow this list. It's, it's right there for us. I want to read one verse here. and We see there that rude awakening regarding the basics. But this one last thing would be point number four is a request regarding this message and it really is this short in verse number 27 it says something i've never read in any other passage in scripture i charge you by the lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren i've never read this anywhere else he said hey you got this book for me this letter i want you to read to everyone now remember in these days who were in the synagogues it was just the men they were the ones that were standing there Paul would have been preaching to men when he was in the synagogue. They, women weren't allowed in. Paul wrote this letter to them, and he said, this is a letter to the church, and this is for everybody. Read this epistle. In that one verse, Paul so clearly emphasizes how important what he just wrote was. How divinely inspired what he just said was. Read this to everybody. All the holy brethren. Anybody who wants to be like Christ, read it to them because they need this message. A message of a reminder about our spiritual warfare, a request regarding our leadership, and a rude awakening regarding the basics. Listen, because the message was for us. If you would stand with me this evening as the piano player gets to the piano, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me, I don't want anybody to move. If you would just stay right in your seat and hang on a second. And maybe the Lord's moving you to the altar and you can go ahead and do that if he does. But I want to challenge you tonight.